desperately need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On today's program, we're talking with Marvin Askew. He's the executive director of the Buffalo City Ballet. Hi, Marvin. Hi, how are you? Great, and thanks uh, for coming in and, and joining us. Uh, it's in, There's a lot of elements to this that are, that are interesting. I want to get into the City Ballet and what you guys are doing and who you teach, but I want to talk just a little bit about your personal story to start things off here. Take us back to a teenaged Marvin Askew and how he ended up getting into to ballet. Teenage Marvin Askew. <laughs> uh-huh. oh, wow. Um, I started dancing at uh, Clinton Junior High School um, at that time. Uh, well, now it's called uh, Buffalo Performing Arts, but um, Clinton Junior High. Um, I was a you know, 13, 14-year-old kid um, that had no rhythm whatsoever. You know? <laughs> okay, wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's the honest truth. You know? Okay. Um, wanted to play basketball. You know, um, we had a couple of guys that were, just, you know, at that time were superstar, and I, you know, I wanted to be like them. And um, I was told, you know, I could, I couldn't dribble very well, I couldn't shoot very well, and so I was told, well, if you know, you take dance, it will help you out with your footwork. Okay. You know, and then I had people who was telling me, yeah, yeah, you know, just like the the football player, you know, like Lynn Swan, you know, from you know, Pittsburgh sure. Ballet, you know, and you know, he, he was taking secret ballet lessons and it helped him with his his athletic ability, you know, with the team. So I figured, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this, you know. <laughs> so me and 14, year, 14 other boys, you know, from the community went, went, uh, went there, um, and we were taking class. Um, and then we got in there and. And then realized, you went to Buffalo but, City Ballet. Um, no, or, or at, at this school. time, this it, at school. This, it wasn't Buffalo. Yeah, okay. it was just a, at the school. But the the uh, instructor who was Carl Singletary, at that time, um, was developing. You know the Buffalo Inner City Ballet. I gotcha. And um, so he would bring, you know, his young female dancers, you know, to the, st- you know, to the uh, school with him, you know, as you know where they would, um, he would use them as examples, you know, to, to demonstrate what the movement is, and then we would have to follow them, you know. And then, of course, you know, we were like, wow, these, you know, these beautiful young, you know, black girls, you know, you know of course, all, you know, 14 of us, you know, like <laughs> fighting over, oh, I'm going to get to meet that one. Oh, sure, no, sure, you know. sure. And um, so, you know, we'll get into the stretch class and, you know, just, you know, being on the floor, working out with the young ladies. And, you know, uh, I start realizing that this is something that I can do. And. Um, so as the you know time went on, I became very skilled in terms of partnering and um, learning how to lift the girls, how to turn them the proper way, you know how to hold them on balance. Did you, you know. have any interest in ballet before this? No, none whatsoever. And probably most of your friends didn't either. No, no. Okay. <laughs> you okay. know, um, <clears throat> but like I said, you know, we would get in there, you know, and uh, so the instructor would tell us, you know, you know, just think of you got a basketball in your hand and you, you know, and you, you know, and you switching from side to side, you know learning how to work the balance of the ball. Well, you have to do the same thing with the girl. Wow. So we put our hands, you know, between the girl's waist. So if it's too far right, you got to pull her left, you know. So realize, oh, okay, it's just, you know, the same mechanics, you okay. know. Okay, all right, interesting. And, um, you know, so we, you know, um, started doing that, and I became very skillful in, in that. So whenever I got it, a chance to partner up with a girl, you know, it was easy. I would get in there and start spinning her and kept her on her center. And, you know, and so every time, you know, a production or something like that would come up, I had the young ladies coming to me. Oh, you know, you know they'll stand next to me because they wanted me to be their partner because they realized that. You could do I, it. Yeah. I could, yeah mm-hmm. I, you know, and uh, so that's when I, you know, I realized, okay, 
uh, I can do this. And um, and after a while, you know, you know, I was getting um, invites from various schools that were willing to have me come in to dance with the girl, and they would pay me five hundred to a thousand dollars, you know, for a weekend to perform. And I realized, oh, I can make some money at this, you know, right. uh, you know, instead of me being at the local supermarket, you know, carrying somebody bag of grocery for a few bucks. Right. You know? And so and just just to take us back then. So we're talking about in the 70s in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. What was life like for a teenager uh, who was growing up in the city? of Buffalo? Uh, it, it was rough. I grew up in um, Tauber Mall at that time. That's on Jefferson and um, Clinton. And uh, there was a lot of gang violence, you know, um, not like you see today. Okay. You know, but we had them too, you know, where that, um, you know, young, you know, black males running around with guns and stuff like that. Um, it, it was it was the threat of shooting you, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, no one ever really pulled the trigger. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, so compared to now, you know, um, um, as far as, you know, gun violence, you know, um, you know, you had young gun mem- uh, gang members, you know, if they were fired the gun, most likely they were firing up in the air, you know, to scare you. <laughs> right. You know, and but even at that time, the just the, the thought, you know, um, and uh, so I, I, I made a, a pledge to myself if I ever have the opportunity to um, leave that situation. I'm going to, you know, and so uh, through dance was the, the the best way, you know, and um, I, after um, graduating from high school, I um, won several scholarships to American Ballet Theater in New York City Ballet and took the, those opportunities to go to New York and study, you know, even further, you know, being in same room like, uh, same classroom with superstars like Mikhail Brishnikov and wow. you see Rudolf Nureyev or, you know. Uh, Fernando Bujones, you know, you were just like, wow, you know, I want to be like that, you know. So then I start doubling my class, you know. So I was taking anywhere between um, two to three classes a day, six days a week, you know, mm. just to get to close to that level, you know. How uh, how many black men were 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 training to dance back then? Um, not many. And if you were black and you were in dance, you know, you were often pushed to, um, to go to dance theater of Harlem, you know, oh, okay. at that time in the seventies with, with either dance theater of Harlem or Alvin Ailey, you know, and those are the two major black dance company out of New York. And so if you were black, you either went to one of those two, right. you know, uh, but because of my style of training, the Russian training, you know, and I had all these Russian instructors, you know, and uh, so I felt that I could compete with most white dancers with, in terms of white company. So I didn't want to be targeted, you know, just because you were a black dancer, you had to go there. Sure. You know, sure. So, which I did audition for um, um, Dance of Harlem and. Um, the director, Arthur Mitchell, told me, basically, uh, you know, we, we you know, I have to retrain you, you know. <laughs> and I was like, you know, at that time I didn't understand exactly what he meant by retraining me. But I think he meant retraining me for that particular style that he wanted me to perform with that company. And, uh, and I felt, well, my training was better than that style of dance. So... I'm gonna take my chance with um, one of the major white companies. So, uh, from that Friday, you know, audition with Dancer Hall, I went to uh, Pittsburgh and auditioned that Monday, and got the job there. And so then I knew, you know, and felt comfortable where I was in terms of, you know, my style of training. So you spent a lot of time uh, professional as a professional full-time ballet dancer in Pittsburgh. Yes. So yeah. obviously, I was the first black member of Pittsburgh Ballet. Wow. At, you know, and even that was rough, you know, because what I realized was that, you know, even though you were good, you weren't going to get the opportunity. Now, I did get one good opportunity uh, um, where the the we were doing the Elvin um, Ailey River and the lead dancer, you know, principal dancer um, had a foot injury. And so it, they didn't know what to do. So all the dancers were like, oh, wow, because you needed somebody who was a jumper and a turner. 
And I, I possessed both of those skills. So a lot of the dancers were like, well, you know, let Marvin do it, you know. And, you know, so um, the the uh, um, director of the company at that point in time, Pet Wow, goes, mm, no, you know, hmm. <laughs> because, you know, the whole thing, be, you know, in terms of being black, you know. So the 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 um, the person who came in to set the, the production um, just kind of spanned, looked around the room and said, okay, this is what I need. Who can do this? You know, so um, so myself and about three other guys, you know, um, took the part. And and at the end, she goes, I want him to do it. You know, so I got to do the lead. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and got very good reviews in the paper, you know. And it wasn't until the, you know, and I realized it was, um, in terms of the director, she wasn't quite happy with it, you know, but she accepted it, you know. <laughs> but that's all that counts. <laughs> You know. so, so you you have a, a nice career going there, but you're you're commuting, you're you're spending your, your uh, weekdays, weeknights in Pittsburgh, but your family's back here in Buffalo. Buffalo. Yeah, and I would I would drive home every weekend, you know. So after unless they're you know um, a week of production, you know, I would drive home every weekend, um, leave um, right after Friday night rehearsal, back in Buffalo within you know four hours. And then I would get up early that Monday morning, drive oh. back, you know, <laughs> get back, you know, in time of, you know, the first class and rehearsal, you know, by 10 o'clock. Wow. You know? And I did that for a couple of years, you know, and uh, it, was, it was rough. <laughs> yeah. You had to make a, a personal professional decision then. Yeah. I had two. two um, actually, at that time, I only had one son. Um, so I had to make a decision, you know. And um, so I felt, well, I need to come back home, <laughs> help raise him, you know. And well, during that, that time period, I got a, uh, received another contract from Missouri Valley, you know, and they were willing to hire me as a principal dancer. And then my wife realized, okay, she's pregnant again. Wow. <laughs> you know? Wow. So I had to make a choice, you know, take that contract or family. So I decided family was over over the contract you stayed here in buffalo yeah yeah and, and that's when i took over to school <laughs> yeah buffalo city ballet um so what about the the buffalo city ballet how many kids uh, tell me about the kids that are there we uh when i first took over the um the school it was a 60 40 ratio 60 white 40 black you know um, over the years, you know, that have reversed. Now it's uh, 90% black, you know, 10% white. 90% uh, black are from the city of Buffalo? From the city of Buffalo. Wow. And uh, so my the thing that I'm always concerned is is giving young um, black girls an opportunity, you know, to um, at least learn, you know, how to um, learn about classical ballet, you know, and what it takes to become a ballerina, you know, and it's, and it's rough, you know. Um, I mean, it's rough. Any African-American dancer, you know, t in terms of dance is going to have a hard life in terms of dance unless you have someone that is, that's going to take you under your wing and, you know, and even if, not just black dance, but even if you're, 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 you're white, you okay. know. Um, the most successful dancer always have someone that is, is backing them financially, you know, because you can't really live off what, you know, your basic salary, you know. You need someone that's that's going to get you to and from all audition classes, pay for your accommodation up until you um, become either a soloist or a principal dancer. But even I, I see with even a lot of core member dancers, they're from very wealthy families who's paying <laughs> their rent bill and paying, you know, or they're contributing to the ballet companies and in return those ballet companies keep them on payroll. Okay. Because of the contribution they're getting from those families. Wow. You know, so that's that's a something that happens quite frequently. So know, that so. Uh, that's not generally happening to your your students then obviously, no, right? No, no. Yeah. You know. What um, you but what I provide for them is, you know, pretty much tuition free. So they can come and take class, you know. Um, basically at no cost at all, you know. Um, what little fee that I may, you know, charge, you know, is, is maybe for like point shoes, um, 
to cover those costs or um, keeping costume clean or having, you know, to provide new costumes or, you know. Right. Um, but what they learn, you know, is basically, you know, how to work together, you know, um, building up the self-esteem that, yes, I can do this. We don't turn away. I mean, excuse me. Even if it's a child that has a weight problem, we don't turn them away, you know, because we want to build, you know, um, like, you know, even their self-esteem up to feel that I can do this too, you know. And, you know, and do you see that? I mean, do you see that then out of uh, these these young women? That yeah, are like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see that that, uh, that they're getting they're, they're there's a change in them. Like yeah, said, maybe if there's a weight problem involved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, if I mean, even <laughs> I have a few come in and you know we go and put them in a, a, a tutu and we go, okay, that tutu is not going to close, you know, because. So we have to design something, uh, what we call an insert, in the back of the panels that widen out so that that child can fit into that costume, you know. So you have to be creative. Right. <laughs> Where that a lot of schools not going to do that. Gotcha. You know, because uh, you find a way. If, if you don't fit the costume, if you don't fit that that mold of what a dancer should look like, they're not going to look at you or consider you. Wow. You know. So they're getting opportunities through your school. Yeah, yeah. You know. That's excellent. Marvin Askew is our guest uh, this morning. He is the executive director of the Buffalo City Ballet. Uh, you got into it there a little bit about self-esteem, but in, uh, and we cannot kind of, inter- uh, kind of guess at the, the physical benefits of being able to, to dance and stretch and the flexibility. But what about the art? of it how can you describe that and what a student would get from understanding how to perform ballet well you, you, what you get is uh, for example um you know, ballet is a syllabus you know so every you know every step has a name and you know so you have to learn how to execute that step you know and so what I try to drive into each child is that, you know, if you know the basic uh, and understand the syllabus, everything else will work itself out, you know. So, and I'll use this, you know, like um, I, I often, you know, start off with the first thing they walk in the classroom is learning what a plie is, you know. And, you know, so I would tell them, Plies mean bending of the knees. Now, you don't have to be a dancer to understand. I mean, everybody, everyone is, you know, through their life is doing what we call plie. You're going upstairs, downstairs, okay. you're bending your <laughs> knees. You know, you're walking, you're bending your knees. Right. So it's just your, your placement. You know, so you have five basic positions that you have to learn. And you learn those five basic positions. And within, you know, if you take the first position... It's, it's basically, you know, heel to heel with your toes expanding outward from, you know, from your body. You stand straight up, bend your knees. Try to bend your knees, but don't take your heels off the floor. Now you're in a half plie. Now, take your heels off the floor and go all the way down. You're in a full plie, you know. So it's... it's, it's Getting them to understand that and every what every movement means, you know, tendus, you know, means to stretch. So you're stretching your legs from your hip bone all the way down to your toe without bending your knees, you know. And when kids learn all, you know, how to execute those steps, you know, and, you know, and I go through it with them um, every day, you know, I see them, you know, and I test them on that, you know. And before we even start actually doing movement, you know, what does this mean? You know, and they got to tell me right off, you know. You know, you seem like <laughs> such a such a nice, easygoing guy. I have this hard time picturing you being this demanding ballet instructor. Well, how, how, well, how would you describe your, your instruction? Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm more of a father figure. Okay. <laughs> you know, with the kids, you know, because they, I mean, they, they call me Mr. Marvin. All know? right. Over the years, it's always Mr. Marvin, Mr. <laughs> Marvin, Mr. Marvin, you know. And, um, but, um. I and, and sometimes I have this look, you know. I would go in and I would look at him like, like a, like a father, like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> you, <sorry>. know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, just give him that look, like, 
uh, no, 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 no. And then they'll look at me like, I'm sorry. And then they'll, they'll, they'll throw out what the what it really means. And say, like, right. okay, I thought you knew what that step means. Why are you doing this? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, and so that's the way I, you know, I kind of operate, sure, you know. Sure, sure. You know, and Was that case, how your teachers were? Um, no, I I know I had these little old Russian teachers that look at me in the eye and go, "You're never going to be anything." <laughs> <laughs> and so I would look back. I'm like, "Yeah, okay, I will prove you wrong," <laughs> you know. But that's the you know that's over the years how, you know, I mean, back in the 60s and 70s, they were just pure mean teachers. Wow. <laughs> you know, and their job was you know they walk in the classroom was, okay, what young lady I'm gonna make cry today. Wow. You know, and that's the way they operate. Wow. You know? So you always have somebody, some ballerina cry. You know, and as a guy, we used to go in the classroom and go, all right, who's going to be the day? Take bets. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? But that's the way, you know, but, you know, over the years, things have changed. You you know, you can't be that way with kids. Right. You know, I mean, you know, I, mean, I, I, I often say this is a Sioux nation. Everybody ready to sue you, you know, if, you know, cruelty, you're being mean, you, right. you know. So I try to find, you know, and I don't know if I, maybe I mellowed out over the years, you know, after having kids and, you know, and now grandkids and, you know, realize, you know, that, you know, you got to find a way to reach them without being mean, right, you know. Right, right, So I would go into the classroom and, you know, I get my point across to the kids, but then at the time I make it very enjoyable for, for them to be in the classroom, you know. And um, I mean, I, I get down on the floor and I act sometimes just as silly as they do. But then I got to ring them back in. Okay, let's get serious now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but um, you know, um, you know, they're, they're you know they're ready to run up to you and hug and you know, especially now after the pandemic, I'm like, oh, no, no. <laughs> right, you know, right, 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 and being right. older and you know, so um, you know, I try not to get too close and you gotcha. know, and. Gotcha. Um, and then as a, a, a male teacher now, you know, with all the things that's going on in the country, you know, you, you know, it used to be a time where you're in the classroom and you could touch the student, you grab the legs and put your legs up and everything, you know, you can't do that now. Gotcha. You know, um, whenever I'm instructing, I'd never shut the doors. Parents could come in and see exactly how I'm working with the kids. You know, I'm not screaming at them. I, you know, I make it very joyful, joyful for them, you know, to be there. Um, and I don't touch, <laughs> you know. Um, and I used to have this intimidating stick that I used to thump on the floor, but <laughs> I don't even use that. You moved on from that? <laughs> yeah. Well, how many, how many boys uh, are you typically teaching? Well, right now I have two boys. Okay. You know, I at, um, up until the pandemic hit, I had about five boys that I was working with. And we went for uh, almost two years of no classes, of shutting mm. down and, you know, uh, most of the kids have, you know, gained weight or, you know, the boys are, are older now and, um, you know, are kind of into um, different things. And, you know, and now they, you know, don't want to do it because now they fell behind. Well, you know, like pretty much all the kids, you know. And I think that not just, you know, our school, but I realized in terms of a lot of other schools, dance schools in the area, lost a lot of students. Sure. You know, because of the pandemic, you know, and kids that were doing very well, you know, set out almost two years. And th that's the one thing about dance. You can't sit two, two years out. Right. You know, you, there's just no way you can come back and, you know. And you said you, you were taking two or three classes a day when you were yeah. in New York City. Right. So, yeah, right. that's what you have to do if you're going to, to stay with it. Right. What about, uh, all right, so I'm a, I, I have a son in the city of Buffalo and he's looking for something that I want my son to have an activity to do. And I'm thinking, I'm probably not a lot of fathers are thinking of a ballet. What are you telling them? What, what, what are you telling those parents? Well, you know, like the, 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 I have some fathers that came in and, you know, and asked, you know, um, and, um, but they're not sure because um, it's still that stigma that you have to you know break you know in terms of when it come down dancing doesn't make you gay <laughs> you know i went through that for many years you know where that like i said i started with 14 boys you know right. or 14 of us and 
we all started dropping out one by one because they were thinking, you know, well, if I share, you know, people think, may think I ain't, you know, gay and, you okay, know, okay. And, um, and I realized, you know, dancing doesn't do that to you. You know, either you born that way or, you know, um, I have a brother that danced. He was gay, you know, and I think that kind of helped me understand the whole thing. And, uh, and so, uh, and I uh, recall even before I got married, I had girlfriends that I was dating, and and then also they just dropped out of the picture, and I couldn't understand why. You know, I come back home, and you know they didn't want to see me anymore. Well, they thought I was gay. Hmm. <laughs> you know, so the, so so years later after I get married, they you know they're asking me, uh, you know, well, I thought you were gay. That's the reason why you know I broke it off. You know, I was like. Well, why do you think that? I mean, wouldn't the does he just ask me? Right. You know. Right. But you know, but, so, that's, but that's still something that you deal with, though. That's something I still I, I not I, I but personally I mean, no, you know, but I'm no, saying yeah. I'm you you now this is you on yeah. the, the the shoes on the other foot, so right, to speak. Right. Right. You now have to explain this to others to, to like fathers, you right. know, who you know um, that want their their sons to take dance, but then they're like, I'm not sure, you know. Um, in, in the building that we're in now, we have a, um, a boxing club on the third floor. And some of the boys, you know, they come down with the interest, like, you know, I want to try, but then, you know, they're que in question, you know, that um, if, if I come down here and take class, then everybody else is upstairs going to think something hmm. different, okay. you know. Right. So, you know, and I just say to them, you know, well, just think about it, you know. Um, so, you know, if you're comfortable in terms of who you are, then you shouldn't have no problem with that, you know. Right. You know, and that's the best thing you can do, you know. Um, but um, it's still that same old problem with, with fathers, you know. Um, and once the boys get, you know, between, um, it's okay for them to take dance, you know, between three and roughly about nine or ten. But then once they get over ten, the father's no longer, you know, they uh, pull them out. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're we're coming down to our our, our our final moments here, but I do want to talk about a couple of things. First of all, your theater, on it's on uh, Leroy, three hundred seven Leroy, right here in, in Buffalo. You just moved over there. How how did the the transition go for you? Uh, it was rough. Yeah. Uh, um, we were like I said, we were in the Tri-Main. Um, one of the reasons why we moved from the Tri-Main because they they brought in another ballet school in the building. And we were at odds of each other. We were basically doing the same old thing. People were getting confused, hmm. <laughs> you know. And um, and I understand, you know, uh, the owner, you know. I mean, it's business with him in terms of rent, and you know. <laughs> um, so uh, with all the problem that was going on, I said, well, I think it's time for us to move, you know. And every time I would try to come up with um, a new way of, doing things it, it got botched you know and some you know because of being hmm. in the building so um we went to 307 leroy that was um basically the building was really in bad condition you know so i um the owners came in and did you know some basic repairs and stuff like that um, um once we we moved in the pandemic hit you hmm. know and so i was unemployed you know and all of my un unemployment check went into fixing up parts, you know, of the building, you know, interior, you know, in terms of the studio, laying out the bars, the mirrors. And um, on the second floor, I put in a small theater called the Inbox Theater, fully equipped with us. I built the stage personally, um, put the lights up, you know, sound system, you know. Next door, it has a cafe, so during intermission, you know, we're patrons can go and have coffee or, you know, um, um, snacks. Um, and then the kids have a game room, you know, so whenever they're waiting on parents or they have free time, they can go up in the game room and play. Um, you know, we, uh, and then we were able to um, convert the, uh, the main studio to small, in terms of having small events, you know, for, something like our Claire Tea Party, which is coming up on December 4th. Um, you know, we can rent the hall out to um, 
for like small wedding reception and things like that, you know. Right. So um, they were, it gave us uh, more opportunity to expand, you know, beyond just um, just teaching the dance, you know, classes to the, to kids. Um, now, we, you know, we can rent the little theater, you know, to uh, young um, dancers who don't have a home to perform or um, um, a lot of kids are into, now they're into poetry and, you know, mm -hmm. so we have a, a place where if you're just starting, you could come in for very few bucks, you know, uh, $100, $200, you know, to rent the space for a week, you know, it's available. And when you said, um, you know, when you're waiting on parents, you told me a story before, and I hope you don't mind sharing it uh, with our listeners, but on May 14th of this year, you were at school um, yeah. waiting on parents, and you but, very likely would have been going to tops. Right, day. right. And because of those parents were late picking up, you know, it was like one or two um, parents were late picking up their child. Um, I would probably have been at that, that store on that day, you know. At that time. Yeah, yeah. And it was just, you know, I guess, you know, luck was on my side, you know, to be, de be delayed. And um, I got in the car and um, and heard about it because I was on my way to that, that top. And when I heard that, I said, okay, well, I guess I'm heading straight home from there, right. you know. So. And you live in the neighborhood. I lived in the neighborhood for over 25 years. You know, and it's just a block away from, you know, that Topps Market. How are things in the neighborhood right now? Um, you know, I still think people are feeling the pain. You know, people are still angry, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I do believe, um, you know, things will get better. <laughs> you know, I feel very sure, sure of that. Um, um, but for me... Um, Whenever I go down, you still have that in the back of your head every time you enter the, the store. Right. You know, because I still, you know, have that feeling when I go there. Um, even though they, they, you know, they up security. But, you know, you still just have that sure. that feeling when you walk in. Yeah. You guys are going to have your Nutcracker performances at your, at the uh, Theater right. on Leroy Avenue, right? Right, right. Yeah. Now, it's... It's not our standard production. Our standard production we usually do at um, uh, Buffalo Academy for Visual Performing Arts. Um, so, like I said, we built a, a box theater. So it's a scaled down version. So it's, uh, like sixteen by sixteen, right? Is that right? Uh, yeah, sixteen by nineteen. Sixteen by nineteen. Okay, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And uh, so we had scaled down the sets to that. Now, the the only difference is that when you're in the full theater, you don't get to see all the stuff that happens behind the theater you know okay. uh, changing of the sets and you know the 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 scenery the lights and you know well here you get to feel all that and see all that wow so you get to see how the show is actually put together without the curtain closing sure <laughs> you know and i found people really enjoy that you know because they never you know saw all the things that goes on in between you know so it's a, it's a nice little intimate experience, you know, for families. And that's uh, coming up uh, in the, December, right? We do, yeah, we're doing it two weekends uh, because we only could we only could see max about thirty people per oh, show. Oh, so a very intimate uh, yeah. gathering, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's December eleventh, no, December tenth and eleventh. Right. Uh, so two shows on Saturday, one show on Sunday, and then the following weekend, the seventeenth and eighteenth. Nice. Nice. And uh, open to the public. Anybody want, wants to Anybody, come? Anybody, yep. Can yeah. come on and check it out. Yes. What will they see? What, 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 give a, 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 your, your sales pitch. Uh, and what, what, what makes it a special moment? Uh, well, what makes it a special moment, like I said, is to um, come in and, um, and feel the uh, – it has a nice feeling in terms of Christmas, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, and especially um, – you know, the one scene, everybody loved it, the, the, the snow scene, you know, um, the lighting effects and, you know, and, you know, with the snow, snow just floating down and, you know, and I, I think they get more fun out of the kids' reaction than, than you know, because the kids are looking up. They're supposed to be on, <laughs> to be on stage, 
performing, but they're up looking at the snow falling down, and you know it's like wow, whoa, you know. <laughs> and so the parents are laughing, like because they get a, a a real kick out of it, you know. Sure. So it's 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 um it's a nice, like I said, intimate, enjoyable scene, you know. And um, so I say, come out and, and um, experience that <laughs> with us. See what it's all about. Yeah. So, and somebody wanted more information, uh, a website to go to? They can go to the website, which is um, buffalocityballet.org. Okay. All or right. they could just call um, 716-833-1243. All right. Very good. And uh, Marvin Askew is the executive director of Buffalo City Ballet. Thanks very much for joining us on Buffalo What's Next. Thanks for having me. Listen to Buffalo What's Next weekday mornings at 10 a.m. on WBFO or stream it on WBFO.org. Use the Talk to Us feature on the WBFO app to leave your questions and comments. Do you absolutely love Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, PBS NewsHour, great performances, and other amazing shows on WNED-PBS? But you're not always in front of your TV when they're on. Don't miss them. You can stream the channel live wherever you are in Western New York by visiting wned.org live or use the WNED PBS app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo. For the balance of the program today, we're going to be talking a little bit about history, a little bit about preservation, a little bit about economic development. And that's the part where I think for this particular program, the, the rubber hits the road, as it were. We talk about what happened to the east side. We talk about what happened to Jefferson Avenue. But has anyone really studied it? Has anyone ever looked at some of the trends? Granted, the Kensington had a role when that neighborhood was split. Granted, redlining had a role when that neighborhood was split. But there are some other factors here that people can look at. And one of the people is someone who's here with us today. Tim Tillman is here from the Campaign for Greater Buffalo History, Architecture and Culture, longtime preservationist. He's got degrees in urban geography and, and history, and he's someone who has studied this sort of stuff for quite some time. Tim, thanks very much for coming on in. Oh, thanks for calling us, Dave. You recently did a um, forum, I guess we can call it, on, on the east side with Veronica Hemphill Nichols from the Fruit Belt, where you kind of traced the history, where you looked at the idea of uh, what has happened to Jefferson Avenue. Jefferson Avenue today is not the Jefferson Avenue we saw back in 1970 even. Mm -hmm. um, everyone talks about supermarkets. Before the tops, there was Figmo's. Before Figmo's, the Bellamy family had a supermarket. Take me back once upon a time, Tim, to when Jefferson was thriving. When was that? Well, uh, primarily, this area of Jefferson that we're talking about the, and that uh, Veronica Hempel Nichols and I uh, discussed in our presentation um, in early December was the stretch of Jefferson from basically Southampton, near where War Memorial Stadium was, to West Ferry Street. And that was really the core of what became the black neighborhood. In fact, I had a, a black work colleague uh, when I worked uh, in Albrecht's downtown uh, decades ago uh, who described Jefferson to me literally as well it's the black Main Street. And chock-a-block with businesses. It was a commercial district yes. equivalent to Hurdle or Elmwood today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yes. And, and so when we look at the type of development, it, uh, it's, it wasn't the first rank, which was uh, downtown Buffalo, but it was the neighborhood service. So you had a dense population, people living in doubles. You had maybe 18,000 people in that immediate neighborhood, and they needed someplace to go for a pair of shoes, get their hair cut get groceries, um, get a goldfish or whatever, and that could all be done in a couple block stretch 
of Jefferson Avenue. And that lasted till when? Uh, that lasted till probably 1970 or so when we begin to see massive uh, clearances of buildings. And, you know, I did, uh, because of the shooting that occurred in May, and all the talk about, well, yeah, the, uh, I was aware, of course, of the effort to lure tops into the neighborhood and uh, that it was um, the place where so many people got their food. And I thought, but why um, a big supermarket? What happened to all the mom and pops? Mm-hmm. And so I uh, did some research on it. And the figures, of course, were simply astounding. Of, the, the idea yeah. of the shop store is no more. And I don't say that to be, be quaint. The, the rhyme just came out. Uh, yep. the, the idea that you'd have buildings with retail on the bottom and apartments above, yep. contributing to both the commercial viability and some of the housing density. Yes. And, and you know, Dave, how many yep. of those buildings came down and why? <laughs> Hundreds. Why? And, and well, they there, there were a lot of reasons. The, uh, but if we go back uh, this didn't happen overnight. We, uh, something like the Kensington Expressway or an urban renewal pro- program, they're not concocted and implemented within a span of one or two years. These are decades. So it, it had to do with thinking a- about cities and what are we going to do with cars going back to the 1920s. A amazing thing that uh, we often use in our uh, historic preservation research um, are a set of aerial photographs from 1927. The earliest aerial photographs of Erie County, they were made for a road Erie County highway project. Where are we going to build highways for the urban future? And so those photographs were done. They show Jefferson Avenue. They show Genesee Street. They show the east side densely built up with uh, innumerable mom-and-pop businesses that are feeding off this pedestrian stream that's walking up and down Genesee, walking up and down Jefferson or Broadway, getting off streetcars, getting off buses at corners, Jefferson and Utica, and that's where you get this locus of businesses. So a mom-and-pop could start a business in a relatively cheap container, a space that had retail up above and um you know, housing a, above, you mean? Uh, yeah. yeah, housing up above, retail sure. down below, and a predictable stream of people going about their business, doing the daily round. And it was great for all walks of life. Uh, small children could be sent on missions to get the bread and the milk without fear, and it's a block up the street, it's around the corner. Um, and you could get whatever you needed for your day-to-day existence. Sure, special occasions, you would have to go to a department store downtown, but you could go to Grant's on Jefferson. Mm-hmm. You could buy an engagement ring on Jefferson. And and was yeah. the primacy of the car, the rising uh, desire to drive, what kind of started the decline? You know, Dave, that, that's correct, and it's a push-pull. More, there, more than just the Kensington, but the idea that you didn't have you didn't need the walkable neighborhoods anymore, so therefore, people didn't necessarily go to the store right around the corner with the housing. That's above. how the planners thought. So when the car was coming, all the planning was done for cars. For example, there I showed a series of photographs. This is amazing. Did you know that until about 1900, 1910, when it snowed, people cleared the sidewalks? Because that's how By people themselves. got around. Yeah. yeah. They, they sledded. Oh, because they had to because they were walking still. Right. right. And okay. they sledded in the streets. And uh, New York City, Boston, you can see pictures of snow plows on sidewalks dumping it into the street. That changed with cars. And we don't even think about it. It's reflexive. The, 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 the snow plow clears the street. Where do they dump it? On the sidewalks. Right. That makes it hard to walk, and it privileges people in cars, whereas young people, old people, people who, um, who can't walk, they have a hard time. That hurts walkable businesses. Tim Tillman is with us from the Campaign for Greater Buffalo History, Architecture, and Culture. He's recently pulled together a presentation looking at what happened, lost Jefferson, what happened on Jefferson Avenue. A uh, lot of the analysis we've heard before certainly looks at the Kensington, 
certainly looks at race riots of the 60s, but your perspective is that it's really more than that. It's the car and what else? Yeah, yeah. It, well, so the car is privileged. Um, you are building the Kensington, and the urban renewal projects, particularly on the Lower East Side and the Lower West Side, they are forcing, at a stroke, five, 6,000 people to find new housing at the same time, because yeah. houses and places of residence were being torn down. Uh, well, th- this this is what happened after the war. You have FHA loans, cheap loans for new housing, new. not not existing new. Where could new housing be built on greenfield on sites of, or on the that, site of old housing that you tear down? Yes, that are be that are being connected by these new highways. So there's a devaluing of existing buildings in favor of new buildings. Only certain people could uh, get these new buildings. And then there was massive demolition of older buildings in the Ellicott District, a, a push northward into the Fruit Belt and Cold Springs. And then you had some panicked reactions on the part of the city, the state, private owners, unscrupulous real estate people um, that led to uh, some massive housing abandonment and demolitions. When you say yep. panic, are you talking about the white flight? Are you talking about a racial issue? What what specifically triggered the panic? Well, well let, let, let me say that, um, you know, you're not going to see, for example, uh, uh, printed evidence of screaming panic what you're going to see is yeah. you, you know you're going to see whoa all of a sudden there's a massive uh um abandonment people moving out there's 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 fires uh things like that and then you look at the census data uh which i did um 1970 you had experienced a 21 percent drop in population from 1960 and then to 1980 a 50% drop in population in Cold Springs, that's abandonment of housing stock mm-hmm. and demolition of housing stock. And you confirm that with the analysis of aerial photographs. You see uh, in 1950 solidly built up houses, and suddenly you, you go to uh, 1990, and there's its little house on the prairie. So that is not a useful neighborhood for people to live in. So it's a downward spiral because it's difficult to live there, for example, if you don't have a car. You can't send someone down for a loaf of bread or a quart of milk. So people want to live in useful neighborhoods where their lives are easier. So life becomes hard when you demolish the very stuff that would contain residences or shops. And that's what happened on Jefferson. So is the solution then to make sure that every development anywhere, uh, east side, west side, wherever, is mixed use with residential and commercial? There's no question. And I would go further. I would say it's incumbent upon the state and the city and the federal government to build this type of building, this shop house, and don't do it as a public-private development. No, we need public money to replace the building stock that was taken, and we need uh, low rents to enable mom-and-pop businesses to form because that's the glue, that's the foundation for neighborhood revitalization. Let me push back against that a little bit. I've heard people in the neighborhood say, Nothing will improve this neighborhood without neighborhood ownership. Um, the, the the classic example is the African Heritage Food Co-op. Yep. They don't want another supermarket. They want something locally right. owned where they can then invest the profits, have, have some viability. If you're taking and plunking in a huge amount of federal or state housing projects, you still don't have the flow of money to the community, do you? Well, you, you, you know, Dave, I, I, I think uh, part of it is perception of what is a federal or state housing project. I, this would be paid for by federal and state money, but you're getting uh, uh, in form the shop house that you tore down in the 1970s. So I would say, no, 
I don't want a 11-story high uh, building okay. like Ellicott Mall. What I want is um, small-scale uh, buildings such as we had so a local mom-and-pop neighborhood-based can, in fact, operate a business. Right now, the method to revitalize these neighborhoods is to get a big corporation that specializes in yeah. putting big buildings up and then, uh, you know, having a automobile-based, uh, you know, little plaza or something. That does not work. That does not allow small businesses and small business people to thrive. And as proof, you could probably point to, again, Elmwood or Hurdle or, or Williamsville or East Aurora. Yeah, it, you, you know what, Dave? And I, I don't think it's a secret. If you have a, uh, a black-owned venture, a retail venture, uh, they're going to go where the customer base is. So you find... Um, a lot of black businesses going to Elmwood or going to Hurdle because that's where the pedestrian flow is. That's where the population density is. So it, it, it is a um, it's interaction of retail space and population base. So you need both. And the only way that Cold Springs or Broadway or Sycamore or Genesee is going to be successful is if we rebuild the conditions that existed prior to destroying so many houses with the Kensington or undermining our public transportation. So if we focus on restoration of the pedestrian stream, other things will come. And you think that that is community sustainable, that that there's the phrase that nothing about us without us is for us. Yeah. Uh, you, you would argue that that is sustainable within the community with profits going back to the community, no? Yeah, it, no, absolutely. And, and I think a, a good illustration of that um, is, again, looking at the redlining maps of the 1930s, how it affected uh, Buffalo today, and it's a mirror image. What was redlined in uh, the 30s is challenged today, but there's a big difference. The west side is the same has the same degree of challenge as the east side but the west side did not suffer the concentrated demolitions that the east side did so when you go to the west side it's still densely populated today it's not a rich neighborhood if if we're mm -hmm. looking at the far west side but you're going to still see corner stores you're going to see these shop houses and you're going to see people pulling themselves up by the bootstraps because they have the infrastructure still there. And the presentation you gave on this, is it available online? Can people watch uh, parts uh, of it? Uh, unfortunately, it's not, but we will be uh, publishing stuff and uh, some of the photographs and everything that we used. All right. Tim Thielman from the Campaign for Greater Buffalo History, Architecture, and Culture. Thanks for stopping by. Okay. Thank you. This has been Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening. This is 